I want to go into the deep end of the pool. You know, I want to swim with the Lord. And we're going to start getting into the deep end tonight. Toward the end of chapter 3, we won't be able to finish it all because it's just, it's so rich and it's so profound. And we will just begin to, uh, I don't know, dip our toes a little deeper into the pool tonight. But we got to finish out where we've been. The follower of Jesus has a blessed assurance. If you grew up going to church as I did, you heard that old hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. We have a blessed assurance. In fact, it's what I would call a triune confidence in our salvation. We don't just have confidence at one level or even two, but three absolutely clear, solid places, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A trinity, if you will, of, of assurance. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, as many are as the promises of God, in Him they are yes. Therefore also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. You get it? God did it through Jesus, pledging us with the Spirit, sealing us with the Spirit. And we even see this this doctrine come out so clearly in the teaching in the letter to the church at Rome. In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, Paul says, "...whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith." That is, we are confident in the propitiation of the Son. We'll get there later this evening. We are confident, secondly, in the seal or the pledge of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8.16, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. How do you know you're a child of God? Because the Spirit confirms it in my heart. I know. I've told you before, I have no question but that I am a child of God. And if you question your own relationship with Jesus, if you question your Christian walk... If you're a follower, but you question your salvation, well then I would say you you need to go back to the Lord and pray because His Spirit should be telling your spirit, you're saved. So, saved by the propitiation of the blood of the Son, uh, confident in the seal, the pledge of the Holy Spirit who confirms this, and then confident in the foreknowledge of the Father. See, God knew before the foundation of the world you were going to choose Him. I'm confident in that. Paul says this in Romans 8.29, Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. It's a triune confidence. And it's sad to me when people cash that out for a carnal confidence. Thinking that by keeping certain sets of rules, by being of a particular family line, that they can actually have that same assurance. You can't. You will never find it. When people choose unrighteousness, or or people choose self-righteousness, or people choose, as we've been talking about, religious righteousness, rather than choosing the righteousness of God. See, that's where our confidence is. 
And we left off last week with Israel. In the 1500 years between Moses and the law and the coming of Messiah, Israel settled on themselves for confidence. Their assurance in themselves, in a different trinity, a trinity of law, the litmus test of circumcision and lineage. Remember we talked about that last week. And Paul clearly says, none of these three things save you. Just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're going to be saved. Just because you've been circumcised does not mean you're going to be saved. Just because you tried to keep the law, and by the way, you know you can't, you will not find your salvation there either. And so there's this this trinity of works, if you will. And it doesn't work. This trinity of self-sufficiency, when the Lord says, no, I am all sufficient for your salvation. So we put our trust in the Lord, not in ourselves. And I've also said this, let me remind you, when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, it's easier to be confident in our salvation than when our eyes are fixed on ourselves. The moment I take my eyes off Him and I start looking at my life and how I'm doing things and, and, and what I'm thinking and, and how I'm behaving, okay, that's when I start to get a little rattled. Anytime someone says to me, I'm not sure about my salvation, I say to them, well, are your eyes fixed on Jesus? Or are you looking at yourself? Because of course if we're looking at ourselves, we're not going to be sure of our salvation. I'm as flighty as they come. But we keep our eyes on Him because He is all sufficient. Well, in the latter third of of this whole section of condemnation, and it's not that Paul wants to condemn, he's just pointing out that we are. It's just the way it is. The unrighteous, rebellious person, the self-righteous, good person, and the religiously righteous person, all condemned. And in that third category, he lands with Israel. They're at the latter third of chapter 2, unraveling all the false outward expressions. Law, litmus test, lineage. And in verse 29 of chapter 2, Paul says, But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. And His praise is not from men, but from God. I just love how Paul basically pulls the rug out from under all systems, all possibilities of our trying to save ourselves and says, no, in every case, we would be condemned. Now, as the next section opens up, the Spirit, through Paul, anticipates some objections. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Well then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Objection number one. Why be Jewish at all? What's the point? Now for outline's sake, what Paul's about to do here in chapter 3, right at the beginning, is he launches into a series of objections and answers. Objections and answers. Four of each. And it's real easy to track these. Verses 1, 3, 5, and 7 are objections. Verses 2, 4, 6, and 8 are all the answers of the Spirit. So objection, answer, objection, answer in these first eight verses. And objection number one, again, is what is the advantage of being a Jew? Paul, if you're telling us that the law, the litmus, and the lineage are no good, why are we the chosen people? What's the advantage? And answer number one, the advantage is the words of God. The words of God. Look at verse two. 
What advantage? Paul says, great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, typically when we say first of all, we're about to give a list. Paul is not. He's already done this once before. When he uses that phrase, first of all, it's not like we use it. The word is proton in the Greek or um, in the Star Trekian, if you, you want to do it that way. It's proton. And proton can mean first of all, but it also can be at the first. Of a first position. Let me tell you what the best advantage of being a Jew is, Paul would say. It's you got the words of God. What advantage? How can you even ask the question? You've been given the words of God. Proton, at the first, or in first rank. In other words, Paul, (laughs) proton torpedoes this first objection. Takes it right out with the greatest of all possible blessings of chosenness, the words of God. Why is that the highest? Because the Bible tells us you have magnified your word alongside your name. The words of God are what help us understand who God is. Because the words of God are magnified alongside the name of God. The words speak of His nature. His name is His nature. He has revealed Himself through His word to the Jewish people first. First advantage. Their chosenness to receive the words of God, or, or the oracles of God. It says in verse 2, I, I love that, that word oracles. The oracles of God. What exactly is that? In the Greek, and this is worth noting, it's logion. The logion. You know what the logos is. right? The logos is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God. Okay, John chapter 1 verse 1. Well, this is a variant of that. It actually connects to it, to the Logos, but it is a specific word, the Logion. You have been given the Logion Hotheos. The Logion of God. The words, plural, of God. What's the difference? The Logos indicates the incarnate word. The Logion signifies the spoken words of God. Spoken of His incarnate nature. So it's different than Rima. If you've heard the Greek word Rima, that also means spoken word. But that's anybody's spoken word. When you see the Logion, in the New Testament, it always specifically refers to the Law and the Prophets. The Logion is the Law and the Prophets. That is the Hebrew Scriptures as spoken to Israel. They've been given the Word of God. Remember when Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, we didn't have the New Testament. Other letters had been written prior to this one. And perhaps one or possibly two of the Gospels had also been penned and were just beginning to circulate, but there was no New Testament. There was simply the Scriptures. The Hebrew Scriptures, the Law, the Prophets, the Logion. The Word is only used four times in the New Testament. Here in Romans chapter 3, verse 2. It's used also in Acts chapter 7. When Stephen is giving his defense before the Sanhedrin, that Jewish council, he said, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Now listen to this. Stephen then said, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness. Who? The prophet like Moses. Stephen 
tells us, was in the congregation in the wilderness. In other words, gang, Jesus was there. He goes on and says, with the angel who was speaking to him, to Moses, on Mount Sinai. This is the one, Stephen says, who was with our fathers. Who? Jesus. And Moses received the living oracles, the logion, to pass on to you. What advantage is there of being a Jew? (laughs) The logion. You were given the Word of God. Now according to Stephen, again, Jesus was there. Now that's no big surprise to me. I've seen Jesus all over the Hebrew Scriptures. He pops up everywhere. He shows up constantly. The second, or, or third place actually, Romans 3.2, Acts 7.38, Hebrews 5.12. We see the logion again. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, the logion. And you have come to need milk, not solid food. You know what the Hebrew writer, I believe Paul, you know what Paul's saying there? You need to go back to Genesis and start over. When we read that verse and say, we need to go back to the elementary principles of the oracles of God, we're not talking about reading one of Paul's letters. He's talking about going back to Genesis and working your way all the way through Malachi. That's what you need to do. Followers of Jesus, are we people of the words of God? And if so, are you spending time in the entire word of God? That's what he's called us to. That's what he said this church was to be about, this fellowship, about the Word of God, in the Word of God, going through the words of God. But he says, man, when you're starting to get a little lame in your doctrine, a little weak in your theology, you need to go back to the elementary principles, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and on through. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, yeah, Deuteronomy, right, okay, so there we go. That's Torah. It's a good place to start. Work your way forward. And the fourth place we see the logion, the oracles of God. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the oracles of God. The utterances, some translations say, of God. What's that? The logion. Speak as though you're speaking on His behalf. In other words, and this is a good way to think of it, let it be God's words that flow out of your mouth. When you speak on behalf of God, the best thing you can speak is His Word. Quoting His Word. Years ago, it was on the, I think it was on the Phil Donahue show. Man, that dates me. Way back, there was a big to-do in, uh, I believe it was in Oklahoma, where a church had actually kicked out a member. And she had taken him to court and it just kind of blew up and they all showed up on the Donahue show. And, and she was talking about how she had been accused of having an affair and how the elders could only have known if they'd been spying on her and how dare they have blah, blah, blah. And on this went. Well, Donahue had a pastor on who was not the pastor of that particular church. He just had a pastor sitting over there on the side and he's questioning the woman and questioning some of these elders and it's all contentious and it was, you know, it made for great TV. It was very sad. But every question, every single one, and I started just to check them off as I was watching this. It so impressed me. Every question that was asked of this little pastor, he answered with Scripture. 
He never said a single thing of his own opinion. Well, what do you think about this? Well, Jesus said, and off he'd go. Verse, 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 verse. If you're going to speak on God's behalf, speak the words of God. Speak the oracles of God. But again, why is this the A number one advantage of being a Jew? I mean, I might have guessed something else. What advantage is being Jewish? Well, you guys get to produce Messiah. That's pretty cool. You guys get the temple. In fact, Paul will list several things in Romans 9. The adoption of sons. Romans 9, 4. The glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, and the temple service, and all the promises. You get all of that. Why are the oracles of God number one? Listen. As the Jews have preserved the Word of God across the centuries, the Word of God has preserved the Jews. Now I can give you a number of examples. I'll just pull one out of the history banks. Go back to the 1300s. 1346 to 53 was at the height of the Black Plague in Europe. You know which people group largely escaped unscathed? It was the Jews. In Europe at the time, it was estimated that anywhere from 75 to 200 million people were killed by the Black Plague. The reason why there's such a big variation from 75 to 200 is so many people were dying, they didn't know if it was the Black Plague or or, or something from that or or death related to it. They, They couldn't keep the numbers straight. But 200 million people in a decade? Shocking. Very few Jews were touched. Why? Well, the oracles of God kept them on a kosher diet. They weren't eating rats or ratatouille or whatever it was that they were (laughs) eating at the time. (laughs) Kosher by the oracles of God. The Jews kept the book and the book kept the Jews. They kept His words and His words kept them. Again, from Moses to Messiah. The Jews were privileged to hold the sound principles of God's Word and on down through the years continuing to be preserved by the keeping of the words of God, the Logion, the oracles. What a great advantage. But the greatest advantage of the oracles of God was missed by Israel on the whole. You know the verse by now. John 5.39 Jesus said, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about Me. Paul says in Galatians 3.22 Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. Being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed, therefore the law has become our tutor, our, our schoolmarm, to lead us to Christ. So that we may be justified by faith. God first spoke it to the Jewish people. And all of the prophecies of Christ and all the messianic truths of the Hebrew Scriptures were there for them to to feed upon over the years to be ready for the moment that Jesus would come. I can't even tell you the impact on my personal faith of going through the Hebrew Scriptures. How much better I know Jesus because of the oracles of God before I ever got to Matthew chapter 1. And yet, because they were so intent on keeping the law, making sure each male child had the litmus test of circumcision, and looking back at the lineage, so many missed it. What advantage is there of being Jewish? 
you have the words of God. May we in the church not miss the advantage of the Word of God. It's not the book. It's the Word incarnate, Jesus Christ. He is our advantage. Verse 3. Then Paul says, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? But may it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your works, or in your words, and prevail when you are judged, or literally there, and prevail in your judgment. Objection number two. Can God's faithfulness to Israel be invalidated by their unbelief? If Israel didn't believe, does that nullify them as a people? Does it nullify God's faithfulness to them? And Paul's answer? No way, Jose. Au contraire, mon frère. Absolutely not. You cannot nullify the faithfulness of God because the faithfulness of God is not based on the response of man. Never has been. Let me give you a sneak peek of what Paul's going to do with this. Turn over to Romans 11. Romans chapter 11. And I've told you, Romans 9, 10, and 11 form the theology, the doctrine for Christians to have an understanding Israel and our relationship to Jewish people. And we'll get there eventually, but just listen to this much. Romans 11, verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected His people. Has He? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. Elijah, caught in a moment there of self-pity. But what is the divine response to him, Paul writes? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Now, we'll get totally into that and the depth of that, what, what it really all means when we get to Romans 9, 10, and 11. But the principle here is absolutely huge. Israel's salvation does not, nor has it ever, nor will it ever depend on Israel. A Jew is not saved because he or she is a Jew. And as we talked about last week, again, not litmus test, law, or lineage. None of that is what saves a Jew. In fact, all of that was given. The, the, the circumcision, the litmus test, was given as a sign that something greater was happening, that the seed of Abraham was going to produce the Christ. The law was given so that the sin would increase and the people would realize, wow, we really aren't good enough for God. The lineage was given because God wanted to show the entire world that when He chooses someone, He does not turn His back on them. Which is good news for us in our salvation, isn't it? I mean, if God's going to reject the the people of Israel, what makes you think He wouldn't reject you? But He has not rejected Israel, nor will He. Well, how does that all work? I don't understand. If they don't believe in Jesus, again, we'll get there. 
Just understand that God cannot lie. Not like Allah, He is not duplicitous. He's not crafty or conniving. Two verses, by the way, in the surahs of the Quran refer to Allah as crafty. Craftier than men. Sneakier. My God is not sneaky. He's not a trickster. He doesn't play games. It's not in His nature. And what does that tell you about salvation? If my salvation is based on my self-sufficiency, I'm in trouble. But if my salvation is based on God's sufficiency, (laughs) God who cannot lie, God who is absolutely perfect and righteous, who has said, you are saved by the blood of Christ, what does that tell us? It tells us assurance, confidence. Spurgeon had this to say about this exact verse. He said, it is a strange, strong expression but it is none too strong. If God says one thing, and every man in the world says another, God is true, and all men are false. God speaks the truth and cannot lie. God cannot change. His word, like Himself, is immutable. We are to believe God's truth, listen, if nobody else believes it. The general consensus of opinion is nothing to a Christian. He believes God's word. He thinks more of that than the universal opinion of man. And I say, hallelujah, amen. It's God's word because God is true and God cannot lie. And Paul would tell Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. It's who He is. He is absolutely truthful. Let God be found true, though every man found a liar. Objection number 3, verse 5. But but if our righteousness demonstrates the righteousness, or, or if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is He? I'm speaking in human terms, Paul says. What? (laughs) Objection number three. If God's righteousness is all the more clear in light of our unrighteousness, wouldn't it be unrighteous of Him to be mad at and therefore judge me? I mean, I'm doing Him a favor here, right? I'm the dark backdrop upon which His glory is more clearly seen. So isn't that good? See how stupid this is? It's a ridiculous objection, which is why Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms. By the way, just my opinion, but each one of these objections I believe are real. I believe the Spirit is having Paul jot down objections that have actually been voiced or were being voiced by Jewish oppositionals or people who are opposed to this new movement. Things that they would actually say or or think in the recesses of their mind. So that as this is being read publicly, people go, well, I wouldn't, I guess I have thought that. The Spirit's reading them like a book. Anticipating even foolish Objections, And Paul says again, I'm speaking in human terms. I'm speaking from the ludicrous position of carnal man. Not from a godly perspective. And so the answer to that objection, verse 6, May it never be, for otherwise how will God judge 
the world. Now, let me explain these two together a little better. They're saying, if my unrighteousness shows His righteousness, then He won't judge me, will He? But the problem is that every Jew knew that God was going to judge the world. And so Paul says, you know He's going to judge the world, right? Well, guess what? If your question is valid, it would invalidate God's judgment of the entire world, not just Israel. If you're having trouble tracking that, it's okay, it's Pauline. Sometimes we'll go, huh? Even after explanation, it's a little difficult. Abraham said, Genesis 18.25, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? All Israel understood that God was a fair and equitable judge and would judge the world. But in Jewish thought, the objection comes back, but, but we're the chosen people. So He's not going to judge us. Right? Even if we're unrighteous, we're to show Him forth His glory and He's not really going to judge us. Right? And Paul says, you're so off. You're so wrong in this. If God's going to judge the entire world, guess what? You're part of it. And you, in fact, will be judged. Well, Paul raises an even more absurd question in verse 7. But if through my lives the truth of God abounded to His glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? Is that just dumb? I lie, but it makes God look more truthful, so I should be let off the hook. I'm like, that's what my five-year-old would say. Verse 8, And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. So here's the objection there. Objection number four. If my sins help to reveal His glory, what's the problem? Aren't I doing God a favor? (laughs) Answer number four. Their condemnation is just. In other words, your condemnation is right on target. And even these objections reveal that. By the way, have you ever heard this argument? Think about this. If my sins help to reveal His glory, what's the problem? Or again in verse 8, let us do evil that good may come. If God is a God of all grace, then everybody's going to be saved. Even if we reject Him. Love wins. There's a two word phrase for this. Universal salvation. And it is not biblically sound. Not everybody will be saved. There is only one way to be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ. It is by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's been slandered in this. How? He's been preaching grace. And people have taken the beautiful teachings of the grace of God that Paul has been preaching on his many missionary journeys, and they've twisted it to to say, well, he's just saying that all the sinners are going to be saved. No, he's saying every sinner can be saved because we're all sinners that fall short of the glory of God. And it's only by the grace of God that we are saved. Yes, Paul was preaching grace, but he was not preaching universal salvation. Universal salvation is unbiblical because it denies the righteousness of God. But what about the love of God? Hey, the love of God is absolute. But so is His righteousness. And it is not love to let the murderer go free. Is it? 
Is it love to say, well, I know the rapist raped my daughter, but you know what? Eh, I love the guy. No justice, no righteousness. The righteousness of God must be appeased. Must be appeased. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Now remember, Paul, through all of this, is answering these objections of the Jewish people against this this newfound faith, so they think, which is actually just the extension of what God's been doing all along. And in verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, and the thesis is confirmed. The thesis? Chapter 1, verse 18. Right? Go back and look at it. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And he has just come back around to covering the entire thesis. Gang, unrighteousness separates from God. Self-righteousness separates from God. Religious righteousness separates from God. There is no distinction. All, Paul says, are condemned. It's an epic shutdown of the whole debate. No more objections here. And now Paul goes back to the oracles of God. The Logion, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Moses? Elijah? David? Oh, no. We all know David wasn't. Mother Teresa? Billy Graham? Franklin Graham? Not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Well, that's interesting. There's none that seeks for God? Yeah. There's only one seeker, and his name is Jesus. He's the one who seeks and finds the lost. He comes looking for us. There's not a single person who's ever given their faith to Jesus who were not first found by Him. He comes to us. We're not seekers. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Man, that's just a graphic picture. An open grave because back in the first century, oftentimes there would be open catacombs. And you had to be really careful if you're walking across the, the you know landscape at night, you might fall right into a grave. People did. They'd fall right in and then they'd land on a bunch of bones and now they're unclean. So for seven days i got to go through the whole cleanliness ritual. What a pain. Sprained ankle and unclean all in the same night. Their throat is like that, he says. Meaning the stuff that comes out of our mouths, it condemns us. It does. Brian was telling me today, I'll just, I'll just point this out to you all. Maybe you can help with this. He was pointing out how shocked he is when believers cuss. He goes, I can't believe it. It happens all the time. I'll be just in a normal conversation with a, with a brother or sister in Christ and blammo, out comes you know, one of any many words. And you know what happened? And I said this to Brian. I said, when someone will... Do I have to explain this? Maybe I do. No. 
When someone will cuss in the presence of a pastor, you know what that means? Not because the pastor's, you know, special or anything, but just because they know the position of a pastor is to be a Bible teacher, and, you know, I would get in trouble if I started cussing in sermons, blah, 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 right? But when someone cusses in front of a pastor, what that tells me is that's what they do all the time. The throat's an open grave. And it's not just cussing, it's gossip, it's slander, it's all those ugly things, it's those murderous intents that come out of our mouths, that hurt other people, it's an open grave. And that's what he's saying. The throat is an open grave with their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Psalm 14, 1-3 is what starts it out. Psalm 53, 1-3. Psalm 5, verse 9, Psalm 140, verse 3, Psalm 10, verse 7, Isaiah 59, verse 7, and finally Psalm 36, verse 1. And you can see them if you have it written out in the margins of your Bibles. Many of you do have those verses to the side. That's where Paul is drawing from. You know what Paul just did? He put the verse up on PowerPoint. He made the case biblically. And then he says, let me prove to you that what I'm saying is legitimate. Let me prove to you that the reality is the nature of man is inherently evil. And by the way, when I say that, I don't intend to sound like I'm Mr. Negative. I'm a pretty positive guy. Pretty optimistic. But I understand what the nature of man is based on what the Scripture says. And you cannot read those verses and tell me that man is inherently good. Or that, uh, you know, it just depends. Given the right set of circumstances, he'll be fine. Not if his throat's an open grave. Not if there's poison under his tongue. Not if all these things be true, and Scripture declares that all these things are true. And by the way, what Paul says right here, that was the condition of the world when Jesus put on flesh. And it is the condition of the heart when Jesus comes into it. What happens when Jesus comes into a mess like this? He gets better. Suddenly that inherently evil nature of man begins to be capable of righteousness. Because Jesus is there. Because He is present. He is the seeker. He is the finder. All of us, Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. That is, His sufficiency for my insufficiency. Jesus is sufficient to do what I cannot do. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Paul says, what you're doing is this. What the Bible's wanting you to do is this. Stop talking. Stop objecting. Every mouth is shut because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. And he's going to expand on that further. But the bottom line is, gang, we are accountable to God. I have that underlined. It's at the end of verse 19 there. Accountable to God. 
Every one of us. And not just those of us who are sitting in here tonight. Not just those who are attending churches throughout the country or the world. All are accountable to God. Paul says, there's no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You have to give an account. You have to stand before the Lord. And you have two options when you do. Option number one. Okay, Lord, open the books. Let's go over all the things I did. Oh, I hope I come out okay. Or option number two. I'm just going to stand behind Jesus over here. Amen. We'll just talk to Him. He, he's, he's my defense attorney. And all Jesus has to say is, Yeah, Rick, He's with me. He's with me. Okay, more on that in just a second. Jesus said this. He said, For I say to you, Matthew 5, verse 20, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees who were legalists par excellence... You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why would Jesus say that? He always went after the scribes and Pharisees. Yeah, but he's making the same point Paul's making right here. Unless you are so perfect that you can even outshine these legalistic stuff shirts, you're not going to make it into heaven. (gasps) Well, then what? Well, let me take it a step further. Jesus says in Matthew 5.48, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Impossible. Unthinkable. And Jesus says, now we're getting somewhere. Paul takes us through Romans 1, 2, 3, all the way through verse 20, revealing that, man, we are useless, we are lost, we are sinful, we are no good, there's nothing for us at all, and just when we're about to walk out because we feel so low and so pathetic and so pitiable, Paul says, but, but, wait a minute, hang on, James, don't leave, but, (laughs) but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, that is the oracles of God, the Logion, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Wow! Twice he declares the righteousness of God back to back in this verse. The righteousness of God is what we need and the righteousness of what is God is what you get when you believe in Jesus. His righteousness, not yours. He declares this twice, and then he inserts the key word to receiving that righteousness, and it is faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. All this other stuff we've been looking at? No. Unnecessary, impossible. Faith. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. And all the rest is covered. What an amazing thing. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. Pagans, good Gentiles, Jewish people, heathens, holier than thou's, Hebrews, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because now apart from the law, the actual righteousness, that perfect good of God's nature has been manifested. That's lit up. 
so that we can see clearly now and give it through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He goes on, For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God. The righteousness of God is the glory standard. The glory of God is that which comes off of the Father because He's so perfect. Because He's so righteous. And this whole, this would be a great study sometime just to talk about the glory. In the Hebrew, the Shekinah, that that cloud of, of, of light by day and fire by night that filled the temple when Solomon first dedicated it. The glory of God, it's it's like a thing in and of itself. Trailing after God wherever He goes, filling the room wherever He is present, the glory of God, and it is because He is so righteous. Because He's righteous through and through. And to a person, we come up woefully short of that gold standard. Which again is the glory of God. The righteousness. I have to be righteous to be in His presence. And I'm not. So it's faith in Jesus that that brings me there. You Bible students remember this? Mene, mene, tekel upharsin. Not eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Mene, mene, tekel upharsin. The brazen, buffoonish, off-the-bench King Belshazzar in Babylon. His, his father, Nabonidus, off probably fighting wars. Belshazzar's there just being a buffoon. Just drinking, partying. The Medes and the Persians are amassing outside of the city of Babylon itself, which was considered to be impenetrable. So they're inside just drinking it up and partying down. They can't get in there. The food stores in Babylon were legendary. They could last 20, 30 years. And Belshazzar no doubt thought, yeah, Pops will be back and he'll take care of this. We'll just party on. That's a big idiot in the Bible. Belshazzar. Don't ever name your child Belshazzar. It's a bad move. And as he sat there in the throne room, tipping back bubbly from the golden vessels and bowls taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem... Go get those vessels. And they're they're drinking now. And while that was going on, suddenly, there in the hall, a disembodied hand appears. I love the story. (laughs) And starts writing on the wall. And the Bible says, look it up, Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar's loins went slack. He wet himself. (laughs) He saw that and lost it. And the hand wrote on the wall, Mene, which means numbered. Upharsin, divided. And Tekel, weighed. What does it mean? Anybody know what this means? First of all, it was probably written in Hebrew and they spoke Chaldean. So he's like, I don't even know what that is, man. Someone says, well, Daniel, get him. He knows this kind of stuff. They bring Daniel in. He says, if you'll tell me what this means, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll give you a purple robe and, and a gold chain and everything. And, and Daniel's like, you know, that is so out of style. I don't really want it anyway. <laughs> it's a loose translation. Go with me. Daniel chapter 5. 
And Daniel begins to tell him what each means. Mene, numbered. God has numbered your kingdom and has put an end to it. Ufarsin. Which literally is divided. Your kingdom is now going to be divided between the Medes and the Persians. But it's that middle word, tackle. That when I hear it, and every time I hear it, it just causes a little shudder to go through my heart. Tackle means weighed. It is the one I find the most disturbing. And Daniel said in Daniel 5.27, Tackle, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Belshazzar, you've been weighed. Why does that bother you, Rick? It's me. That's me. Put me on the scale and I am deficient. Weigh the value of my life and the things that I've done and I've accomplished deficient. Weigh me against the divine scale. Put me on the divine scale against the holy standard of the righteousness of God and I can't even, I don't even measure. The needle doesn't even move. There's nothing there. Found deficient. We talked about this last week, how how we compare everything to ourselves as if ourselves are something to compare with. We approve of the world based on do they fit within my paradigm for life, as if my paradigm for life was anything of importance. And we tend to compare everything by the flesh. Gang, the comparison is against God. The real comparison is against the righteousness of God, that absolute glory. And what's shocking to me, as I stand there on that scale, nothing happening, knowing I have nothing to give, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only begotten God, full of grace and truth. Jesus put on flesh. Amazing. Stunning. The whole thing that God has orchestrated from the first day of creation to today is absolutely mind-blowing. He became flesh. And by the puny mind of carnal man, this is absolutely inconceivable. But in the mind of God, watch this, verse 23 going on. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Now just stop right there. The sum of salvation swells and explodes from that passage of Scripture. There are some who believe those two or three verses right there, 23, 24, 25, are the essence of all of Paul's letters right there. That's it. That is the high watermark. What he says doctrinally about salvation here is taken the greatest theological minds of history their entire lives to still not quite figure out. It's so astounding. So we're going to save most of it for Sunday morning so we can cover it in that hour. 
But I got to give you this much tonight. Propitiation. What is propitiation? What is that word even? We don't use that word. And if you do, you know, if you're a kid in school, you get beat up for using a word like that. <laughs> propitiation. The Greek word is hilasterion. Hilasterion, which literally translated, it's not atonement, it's appeasement. The appeasement of wrath. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul now says, but we have propitiation, which satisfies the wrath. Propitiation? Satisfaction? Appeasement of the wrath of God? God's wrath, God's anger. We talked about a couple of Sundays ago. God is angry about sin. Angry that this world is torn up by it. Angry about what we've done. He feels it passionately. And yet, we are, we are so far from getting this. I still, I, I read this, I'm, I'm sitting here this week saying, I want to fully grasp this. Remember what I said about going into the deep end? We're in the shallow end in our understanding of God's anger. At least most of, I will say, the church in the world today. Still in the shallow end. What do you mean? We, we use sayings like this. God hates the sin. God loves the sinner and hates the sin. Isn't that true? Yeah. In a shallow, superficial way. See, people use that phrase as a dismissive of the righteousness of God. Nah, but he loves the sinner. He hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Translation. So what the sinner does, though God hates that, he's still going to take care. It's, 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 it's going to be all right. It's okay. You can still live that lifestyle. It's all right. It's going to be okay. We casually dismiss the wrath and anger of God when we have these little catchphrases that make everything fine. Chapter 1, 2, and 3, honestly, three chapters, it's not enough to explain how hot God's anger burns against sin. That's how the Bible describes it. A burning fire. Go back to the oracles. Exodus 24, 17, the eyes of the sons of Israel saw the appearance of the glory of the Lord. They said it was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. They were petrified. As they came to the mountain, God said to Moses, hey, make a little boundary line around the mountain so the people don't come too close and get fried. Like any of the people were going to get close to it, right? They were scared to death. This consuming fire. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. On coronation day for Aaron, his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, they took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. The day Aaron was being crowned high priest, his sons, down, crispy critters, deep fried. It says fire came out from the presence of the Lord. You know where the presence of the Lord was? 
in the Holy of Holies. Imagine the scene. You're all gathered around. Aaron is there. He's being anointed. And Moses, they're doing the work. And Nadab and Abihu, who, had, by the way, had been drinking, Leviticus tells us. They've been drinking, so they're a little tipsy. like, yeah, let's make our own fire. That sounds great. They make their fire. And out of the tabernacle rushes and they're dead. That's the anger of the Lord. Numbers 11, verse 1. The people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. Oh, woe is us. Life is so hard out here in the desert. Wah, wah, wah. And when the Lord heard it, His anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. That's angry. I've never been so angry that I've consumed one of my children. I've considered it. You know what's amazing about that, by the way, that story? Side note, this just came to me. The fire of the Lord consumed the outskirts of the camp. What would that make the people do? Run to the center. Who was in the center? The tabernacle, the presence of the Lord. You guys need to get closer to me, not further from me. When he's angry, that's the purpose. He's angry because he wants us to come closer. His anger is against the rebellion that pushes him away and drives us out. Number 1635, in what's been called Korah's rebellion, fire came forth from the Lord and consumed 250 men who were offering incense. See, if you asked a person of Israel, one of the children of Israel, in those days, what does it mean that our God is a consuming fire? They would say, oh, well, it means death. It means burn victims. It's terrifying. Deuteronomy 4.24, Moses said, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And all of Israel would very easily say, "Uh Uh-huh. Yes, He is. We've seen it. And by the way, Hebrews 12.29 quotes that, Our God is a consuming fire. Why, Why are you going off on this fire stuff, Rick? Because the fire is not a casual metaphor. We simplify the anger of God. And if we don't understand the anger of God, how in the world can we understand the forgiveness, the kindness, the grace, which is made all the more rich and deep and full and refreshing when we understand the anger. God's righteous wrath against mankind's sin and rebellion is indicated as a consuming fire. And it is a fiery wrath that demands satisfaction. Propitiation. Propitiation is the appeasement of that fiery anger. I want you to hear that and get it so that every time you see the word propitiation, you see flames and you see them go out, doused by the blood of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's got to be one of the most astounding verses in all Scripture because what Paul just said there 
We've been talking about it and how five times in Romans he'll use that phrase, the righteousness of God, and then to the Corinthians he writes that we might become the righteousness of God. How? By the one who was righteous God putting on flesh and becoming sin. Appeasement. Propitiation. And the blow of judgment was dealt to Jesus instead of you, instead of me. Propitiation. It is not a casual thing to say He took my place on the cross. We can treat it casually, but if you're lined up on death row, the next one to go to the cross, and the man before you... No, let's say the man behind you is taken instead of you, put on the cross, and then you walk outside and they say, Oh, I'm sorry, we're all out of crosses, you're free to go. We might understand a little bit more Him taking our place on the cross. Watch how this works. This word propitiation. Hilasterion. It has two variants. Halasmos and halaskomai. But they're all the same root word for hilasterion. And the words are used... Who can guess? How many times in the New Testament is propitiation used? Six times. So, six is the number of man. And just six times... That word, propitiation, hilasterion, hilasmos, hilaskomai, is used. The next time we see the word, it's in the, it's in the verb form, hilasmos, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. To make propitiation. That is, now he's acting out propitiation. Helasmos, whereas Hilasterion, he is propitiation. Now, more on that in a second. The exact same word usage as Romans 3.25, where he has, we are, we are saved by the propitiation. God displayed publicly a propitiation in His blood through faith. Hilasterion, the noun form, it is used in Hebrews 9.5. And this is incredible. In Hebrews 9.5, it says, Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot speak now in detail. Did you hear it? Hilasterion. Propitiation in that verse is translated mercy seat. The hilasterion is the mercy seat. The mercy seat? The Ark of the Covenant, you all know, was a box. It was a lidless box. Please understand that. It was not a box that was originally covered. It was it was described, here's how you make this box. Four sides to it, made of acacia wood, covered over in in pure gold. Inside the box would go several things. The mercy seat was a separate piece of furniture that sat on top of the box. That sat atop the ark. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 4 says, The Ark of the Covenant was covered on all sides with gold, in which, now get this, in which was a golden jar holding manna. 
just in case they wanted to make a little more manicotti. It was right there for them. And Aaron's rod, which budded, and the tables of the covenant. These were all placed in the box without a lid. And then the mercy seat is set on it as a lid, as it were to shut those things up. Why? All three of those emblems revealed the rebellion of Israel against the righteousness of God. The manna, symbolizing God's provision and the people's complaining. Aaron's rod that budded, marking godly authority and man's rebellion against that authority. And then the tables of the covenant, that is the Ten Commandments, the two tables, the tablets but not the original ones. Because the original ones were smashed by Moses when he came down the mountain to find the people already sinning against the law they were waiting to receive. Everything that went into the Ark of the Covenant was condemning three items as three chapters in Romans 1, 2, and 3 of condemnation. All of these things condemning the people. And the box with no lid would allow the Lord in His presence to look right in there and go, condemned, condemned, condemned. But but Moses, I want you to make a mercy seat and put it on top of the box. Shut that stuff up. But there's more. Once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And he would sprinkle blood, not on the ark, on the mercy seat. Blood sprinkled on the propitiation. Which at that time, it atoned for, it passed over. It covered, like the lid itself, it covered the sins of the people for a time. Leviticus 16.14 He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side and also in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. By the way, just a side note, Leviticus 16.14 for you Bible students really want to get into this stuff? In the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures the Septuagint the word for mercy seat in Leviticus 16.14 is hilasterion. It's the same word, the propitiation. And when that happened, when the blood was sprinkled, the sins of the people were, again, atoned for, covered, passed over. Why? Because every time that God saw them sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, it would remind Him not of the temporary satisfaction or appeasement, but of the final satisfaction and appeasement of His wrath through the blood of Jesus on the mercy seat of the cross. The propitiation. This is big. What He did here, that we kind of skate over, oh, Sunday morning, God, do a thousand, then get home and get lunch. I'm, what He did here, that, that every person in history isn't on their faces with Scriptures open before them, blown away as we begin to understand the depth of the love. It's beyond me. 
Woost says when the sacrificial, sacrificial blood was sprinkled on this cover, it ceased to be a place of judgment and became a place of mercy. The blood comes between the violated law and the violators, the people. The propitiation. That's what the word means. When you read that, the propitiation in His blood, Paul writes. He is both, and get this, He's both the provider of the sacrificial blood and He is in Himself the mercy seat. He is the propitiation. And He's the blood for propitiation that's sprinkled and saves. Put a little more simply, Jesus is the place of satisfaction. All of God's righteous anger completely satisfied in Him. And by the way, the last two verses, I gave you four so far, or, or three. A couple of more verses that use this word propitiation. John uses them in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He Himself is the propitiation, the mercy seat, the appeasement of wrath for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Which I've told you is not universal salvation. It is universal appeasement. That is, the blood of Jesus is sufficient to appease for all the sin of all men, of all history, and all the anger of God, if we will put our faith in Him. The only thing that stands between the condemned sinner and salvation eternal is putting their faith in Jesus. That's it. Faith in Christ, the propitiation is done. 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He makes propitiation. He is the propitiation. In other words, it's not something He gives. It's who He is. The righteousness of God. He comes between my sins, my failures, and the wrath of God. He doesn't just atone for them, cover them for a time. It's not just a lid to keep my sins under lock and key. It is a cleansing. It is a satisfaction of the wrath of God by His own blood so that when God sees me, all He sees is pure. I mean, that's just, again, remarkable. In fact, in verse 27, Paul writes, Where then is boasting? <laughs> it's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. Do you believe Jesus for the satisfaction of the wrath of God? Do you trust in Him for your appeasement? Accepting His blood as the finishing sacrifice for redemption? Or... Would you rather boast on yourself? Now I'm speaking like a man. That's ludicrous. That's just crazy. No, I'm good enough. Really? Wow. The propitiation, the mercy seat is Jesus. Now, if you were counting, I said there were six verses in the New Testament and I only read five. Let me give you the last one and we'll end on this. In fact, turn in your Bibles, if you will, back to Luke 18. Verse 10. Luke 18.10. Just go left about three books. I love this. 
the only other place in all the New Testament, the sixth place, if you will, where we see propitiation at work. Start in verse 9, Luke 18, 9. He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. I I like how Jesus says that. Just so you know who the Pharisee is praying to, it's himself. He's now praying to the Lord. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Did you see it? God, be merciful to me. Helasmos. God, make appeasement for me. Be my propitiation. That is the closest thing, by the way, in the entire Bible I can find to a literal sinner's prayer. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Give me propitiation. And Jesus says, this man, not the Pharisee, but the tax collector, went home justified. Justified? Yeah. Just as if I'd never sinned. And we'll talk about justification on Sunday and redemption and more about righteousness and faith and all of the riches that are there in Romans 3.23-26. through 26. But what confidence we have by the foreknowledge of the Father through the propitiation of the Son sealed with the Holy Spirit and I leave you with this question Hebrews 2 verse 3 how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation Father I'm in awe before you and I knew what we were going to talk about tonight but I, I can't read this without literally being stunned again at what you ordained, at what you put together. I mean, we talk about, Lord, sometimes how you can't look around and see creation without knowing there's a Creator. (laughs) I, I can't read these verses without seeing the absolute, intelligent, and overwhelming agape love design of the Father. And so I I just, I thank You. I praise You. I fall down before You in everlasting gratitude thanking You that though I stood on the scale and was found wanting, that Lord Jesus, You made propitiation on my behalf. That You appeased that fiery anger of God for me. And not because I ever deserved it. I don't. But I do this. I trust You, Lord. May we trust in You. Simple as that.
May our faith be trust that you have done everything required that we might be the righteousness of God in you. We thank you for your word tonight. We are humbled by it. And we worship you in it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.